0: There's a quote, I don't remember who, who it's from. We can look it up and add it in later. But the, uh, the author said that writing a novel is like having an empty swimming pool and going out every day with a cup of water to fill it. And so it, it's sort of, you have to trust in uh, gradualism. You have to trust in time and, um, and how incremental progress can lead to an eventual uh, fulfillment. I'm Fong Nguyen, the author of the novel Bronze Drum. I also teach at the University of Missouri, where I'm the Miller Family Endowed Chair in Literature and Writing. I've written uh, five books, which include three novels and two short story collections, and my individual stories have appeared in uh, more than 50 national literary journals across the country. Um, I've also edited some volumes, too. Welcome to The Vietnamese.
1: I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you. Thank you for coming on, Phong. Thanks for having me. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you nowadays?
0: Um, I think that nowadays is really key, right? Because it sort of evolves and changes throughout one's life. And um, I think right now it means... Uh, pride and belonging to a thousands year old culture. Uh, one that, you know, in the relatively recent history is being discovered and better known throughout the world. I finished
1: bronze drum over the weekend. And one thing that I kept thinking about over and over and over again is how close we were the Vietnamese come to extinction.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah,
1: with all of these invaders and all of these people trying to take over Vietnam, it's it's really miraculous that we have become and 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 have remained here on Earth.
0: Yeah, that's that's an extraordinary way to put it. I hadn't hadn't thought about it in exactly those terms, but uh, but you're right. I mean the the um, punitive nature of the um, you know Ma Yuan's campaign. It, it could have led to something far more severe than uh, what we had, which was already uh, oppressive enough to the um, the Latvia uh, people at the time. Uh, and it could have not just endured for as long as it had, but it could have remained and it could have led to, as you say, a kind of extinction.
1: If this book was read to me when I was seven or 10 years old, I think it would have had a profound difference on my psychology up because yeah. of the pride that it instills in young women, young men after reading it. And you know, this is something that re- relatively very old, obviously very old tale in Vietnamese culture, but in Vietnamese American culture, I mean, most of us probably have heard a little bit about the Jung sisters, yeah, yeah. but not to the extent of yeah. how you've painted the picture, the story.
0: Yeah, it's it, it was very meaningful to me growing up. Um, I It's not as though my father was telling me the story of the Chung sisters as a way of instilling Vietnamese culture in, in me and my brothers, but rather it was just one of his favorite stories. So, you know, he would also tell the story of uh, Journey to the West, you know, the Monkey King story. And he okay. would tell the story of the um, three Kingdoms, and he would tell the story sometimes of, you know, uh, the Fable de Font- La Fontaine. And, and so it was just kind of one of his go-to stories. And the consequence of that is it became part of my canon of characters and stories. And, um, and then I experienced some frustration when I would go to school and people wouldn't know the same characters and stories that I knew and uh, then went to college and my professors didn't even know um, who these characters were and who, about their story. And so, um, you know, part of my motivation for writing it is as you say, you know, to, to be able to read about these, these characters and to take pride in those examples.
1: What did your dad do? What was his?
0: he was a chemical researcher for Johnson & Johnson for about 35 years. Um, so he uh, uh, came to the United States on scholarship in 1962 and uh, went to the University of Montana, sorry, went Montana State University in Bozeman, um, got his PhD in chemistry at University of Madison, University of Wisconsin in Madison, where he met my mother, um, who was studying um, uh, languages and linguistics. And, uh, and then soon after that, he went to work for Johnson and Johnson and did that until he retired.
1: I'm so grateful that somebody like you wrote a book like this. And, you know, like I told you earlier, now we want more, yeah. we want more of this stuff. Um, you know, you've done the Jung sisters. And now is there any way that we can expect more of this type of material to, to show up?
0: uh well thank you first of all uh for saying that and um i envision this book as um uh, the beginning of dialogue the beginning of conversation not as any kind of definitive version because it's my interpretation of this their story and um i would love to see more books uh, about the Chung sisters and not just about the Jung sisters but uh you know about uh about or about uh or any you know so many other um you know vietnamese legends and stories that incorporate both history and myth um it's a fascinating kind of territory to explore in literature and uh, you know maybe someday in film and television um and so i i don't have any um uh, presumption that I'm going to take up that burden myself but I hope that um, people continue to delve in the same territory and come up with new discoveries
1: where what other sort of things did you think that you were going to be doing as you got older as an adult
0: um, that's a great question i um, I you know I think I was of a generation that didn't have have as clear of a sense of professional destiny as let's say my children's generation. So my children all knew or seem to know what they want to do at a very young age professionally. Um, so like my, my oldest son is now in graduate school for mathematics and he has wanted to be a mathematician since he was in the sixth grade. Um, my middle son is uh, starting college, uh, planning to study linguistics and up until college, and even after, I I just I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know what I wanted to do for money, you know. Um, and uh, so I think it was that was more accepted in my generation, where um, you know you go to college and you're you can have the liberal arts experience without being uh, pressured to pick you know what you're going to study right away. I mean, it, it kind of helped that my oldest brother uh, was an academic star and mm-hmm. is working at Google now and you know, succeeded on those terms. So there was less pressure on me to succeed on the same terms, I think. Um, but uh, I think when I envisioned my future, I probably pictured some music involved, maybe some art, something artistic, but I didn't necessarily know that I was going to be um, building my life around writing
1: at what point do you you're like okay i'm i'm gonna start putting you know pen to paper and i'm gonna go into this
0: yeah with this particular project you mean no no
1: with your writing
0: career oh writing in general oh so um so i have um kind of a little origin story that i tell about how i decided that i was going to commit myself to writing and it's the year i took off from college i went to Bard College, uh, which is you know kind of an elite private school, and I was not prepared for it, so I took a year off. I met my future wife Sarah there, and we um, lived in a cottage in Connecticut with no heat or hot water. Wow! And um, then we uh, worked at a waste paper company as assistants to the assistant accountant um doing data entry on this um you know these old crt screens with the green lettering and the windowless basement office and uh it was miserable and so as a kind of spiritual survival i needed to wander and i would go through the streets of new haven and sometimes you know there'd be a building that's open like the co-op or something i'd walk into it and i went into a used bookstore and um, at random, picked out a book, uh, which turned out to be Marcel Proust's Remembrance of Things Past, translated by uh, C. Scott Moncrieff. And um, for the first time, and maybe only time in my life, time just elapsed. Like I had no sense of time passing, and suddenly the shop was closing and um they uh needed me to either buy the book or get out and i bought the book and i you know it's a it's a massive volume and i carried it around with me for a year i was a very slow reader and um uh he just did impossible things with language things even in translation you know because the original is in french and uh, i wanted to do a little bit of that impossible you know and and um so it inspired me to uh commit myself to writing and i I didn't have any awareness of proust as like being like people think that proust is this like big pretentious kind of academic um name but uh at the time i was just enamored of the sentences and, and didn't think of it as his reputation or anything i just thought of it on the level of the um of the language and um found it to be so stirring and moving and beautiful and um, articulate.
1: You know, w- when I read and, and listen to words, um, sometimes, or most times, there's just standard descriptions, things that are just being said to kind of like paint the, the, the idea. Yeah, you're, and I'm trying my best to explain this, because I'm not an academic. But yeah. when you say, um you wanted to do um the impossible with words Mm -hmm. i i I think about the bronze drum and i think about vietan Mm win the kind of writing um that's for me impossible and 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 quality where it shines is when it's ideas that seem so familiar but is put in a totally different angle and a different light that you go what you just get sucked in because it's just a a completely radically different way of seeing uh something that's very familiar but in a very different way or in a tone that um you you, you, it's like it's existed for all of eternity but then this is so fresh to hear the first time and i feel like that's what i kept hearing over and over in the bronze drum
0: that's amazing to hear i I feel that way uh reading viet Tan Nguyen is the, the that I, I didn't know that I knew that until I read it you know it was like it has always been there and, yeah. and yeah, so um so it's wonderful to hear that that uh, a reader can have that experience with drum as well
1: yeah yeah um and then you know you have to do so much other acrobatics with you know story design and you know pacing and keeping up trying to make it all balanced but then yeah. on top of that there's this sort of in the impossible with with words and it's beautiful there's probably a skeletal version that exists throughout you know the history of the the Jung sisters um how did you sort of mitigate and balance the the amount of of your artistic infusion into the the book
0: um it was uh, a long road and it was frustrating at first because I thrive on information as a writer I need to you know the more the better um the more uh details already exist within the story the better um and i was working with a um scholar who is an anthropological archaeologist at university of wisconsin named nam C. kim and um he uh wrote the book uh, the origins of ancient vietnam and um uh, working with him uh i learned um you know, some very important things which I brought to bear on the story, but I also learned how little is known about so many things mm. in terms of, you know, the medicinal system of the time, the calendrial system of the time, like all the material culture stuff, like, you know, that is, is you know, is good, but um, the stuff that is immaterial uh, was much harder to um, figure out because so little is known. And so I was frustrated by that for a long time, and then I kept hearing from fellow writers like that should be liberating. You should be able to, you know, realize you can do anything then, you know? And um, eventually I came around to that understanding that having that license was a benefit rather than a drawback. Wow. And, um, uh, And there are, you know, so there are key deviations from the history so there's you know a lot of things are mentioned that would not have existed 2000 years ago the um Al-Zai, the nonla, the um uh water puppetry the you know um apparently they wouldn't have had elephants and and war elephants at the time um so all those are sort of important enough to the pop culture version of the chung sisters that i felt like i needed to include them um, despite the fact that they deviated from history. And in in terms of deviations from the, um, the sort of national myth of the Chung sisters in Vietnam, um, that, uh, was, you know, more for narrative purposes. So for example, in the attack on the palace, um, the Chung sisters themselves weren't there historically, uh, when, uh, their father and Tisak were killed um but it was important because the story is kind of told through their perspective and 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 for them to be there in order to witness it worked much better dramatically than um to have have them absent so there are you know most of the times where i was choosing between history and myth i chose myth because it was more interesting and most of the times between myth and invention those times where i chose invention were times when it it couldn't work dramatically the other way
1: god what a wonderful ex i feel so privileged to sit here and ask you that and hear that response you know
0: oh, uh, thank you
1: Be- because I, I i'm i'm it the lines are blurred because i'm not uh a, i'm not a historian i, I don't know what's yeah. fact and fiction but it all works
0: yeah it works well well thank you um yeah and and um My hope is that, as I said, um, it begins a dialogue, it begins a conversation, and people become more interested in the Chung Sisters as a result. My hope is that people don't receive this as a work of history exclusively, but as um, a a historical fiction with an emphasis on the fiction side of things. In the uh, acknowledgments at the end of the book, I mentioned that my father wants the readers to know that this is a work of fiction. And he said that many times as he was, uh, as I was talking to him about it, I was uh, as he was reading it. He's like, "Just make sure that people know this is a work of fiction." I said, "Well, you know, it says novel in the front and it's shelved in the fiction section." He's like, "Still, just make sure that they know it's a work of fiction. So, um, it's important."
1: Yeah, and w- another thing that stood out for me was the sort of the family infrastructure or the way that you know daughters respond to their dad, and you know, it, it feels like sort of like a you know, modern way uh, uh-huh. of, of painting these uh, sisters, because, you know, I, I can't imagine 2000 years ago, like any yeah. <laughs> parent or daughters would talk and converse with their parents in, in that kind of mm-hmm.
0: way. Yeah. So it, I was talking to a historian, uh, Minsu Kang, who's um, at the U- University of Missouri, St. Louis. And he asked the question of, um, you know, how do you balance the modernizing with the you know, delving into the historical when, if we, if I tried to render exactly the historical way that they spoke, first of all, there's no way for me to know that. Right. And second of all, it would be incomprehensible to the modern reader. Right. Right. And um, so that it's inevitable that there's going to be a kind of modernizing um, what, but you know, what people tend to take notice of is and be surprised by is the, differences from uh between you know uh the you know a a culture that did not have a traditional family structure and you know a modern kind of nuclear family unit kind of thing
1: Jung Jung yi's response to her mother um after the gardener's son um and going out to sort of be her own woman was a very uh he was very blown away by that take. Uh, yeah yeah. <laughs> how, how did you come up with that idea
0: um, So one of the things that the, that I recall reading about uh, the Chung sisters is that Chung uh, Chak was more interested in military strategy and Chong Yi was more of a warrior. And to me that seemed to imply a whole host of other contrasts in their sibling relationship. And so um, I saw Nhi as having, possessing a certain unquenchable fire, right? And um, part of that was inevitably going to inform her relationship to her parents. And um, the fact that she was an aristocrat perhaps enabled her to be more rebellious than she otherwise would have been but uh it's also at a time where these things are still being negotiated where the family itself is still being negotiated because the influence of confucianism is only you know 100 years old and um uh there's still these very uh traditional um uh ways of viewing things and of experiencing the world which contradict it yep
1: the the way a modern reader like me related to the two sisters is uh, uh, w- whenever you were going to one voice or the other voice or description of, of either sister i took upon it I, I imagined myself as being oh the rebel the freedom you know the the, right. the thrill seeker the adventure seeker oh wait i also have a very uh strategic side i also have a very calm you so yeah, yeah. it sort of allowed me to kind of relate in a way that you know we have both sides of this in in each
0: Yes, yeah, that's great i'm really glad to hear that because i i find for myself sometimes i if i read a book with two focal characters i side with one or the other and it's hard to relate to both especially when there's such strong contrast between them so I'm glad that that was your experience. I hope that that is readers experience that they identify strongly with both Chung Chak and Chung Yi as opposed to just saying yeah. one or the other. Yeah.
1: Well the, well, the thing is, they're both heroic, right? So you I mean, yeah. me as a young, you know, in my mind, I'm like, I want to be a hero just like Chung Kyak or Chung Yi, right? Like, yeah. I want to be both of them. And so every time one of them pops up and the story's focused on that sister, I'm like oh my god i I'm, i want to be that person i my my young child boy inside me yeah yeah saying that i want to be that i want to be that so it balances out sort of it rounds out the the relationship that i have with with the reading
0: yeah yeah that's beautiful i i think that that uh you know if you can read with that the 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 mind of that and the perspective of that inner child that's wonderful yeah. anytime that happens
1: why this story and not like the 10 other ones that vietnam has
0: yeah so um i you know uh i grew up with um this being the main story because there was the story that my father was most interested in right so i knew about uh, some other legends but i didn't know them as deeply or care about them as much because they weren't told to me as often and weren't told to me with such um a sort of loving care you know um so in some ways it was just inevitable that i was going to um write uh, the story of the chung sisters as opposed to any variety any any other story but also there's so many little um uh, stories within the story which are so wonderful like the um Hunting of the tiger, the skinning of the tiger, and then writing their their version of the Declaration of Independence right on the skin of the tiger. Oh, I, you know, I didn't make that up, right? That's the part of their story. And the uh, Feng Tien, uh, who uh, you know uh, gives birth on the battlefield, slings the baby into the quiver and keeps on fighting. Um, you know, it's that's just sheer badassery. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's so many stories throughout the book that. Um, I was just eagerly awaiting writing them because I've for so long um, enjoyed hearing about them.
1: Well, shout out to Queen O. She is the person that narrated the the Audible uh, version.
0: Yeah, narrated it beautifully.
1: Beautifully, she did a great job. Yeah. Uh, she introduced us, and so thank you so much, Queen. Um,
0: yes.
1: I reached out to her throughout the as I was working working through the book and listening. And just texting her saying, I cannot believe a man wrote this. (laughs) And, and she said, this is what she said to me. That was, you know, um, she's Fong's done the work Mm -hmm. and the work is the processing of, I think what she means is the perspective of, of a woman. Yeah. And, um, you know, the ideas inside of these women and that for me, probably takes a lot of courage to say you know i'm going to tell the story you know as a man to to take on that as a big uh task
0: yeah i I mean how did you that so I, i i think um you know that's one of the reasons why it was you know a long road is feeling as though i had um the right to tell their story for a variety of reasons um but um one thing that helped me access um, their characters in the story was thinking of them of them not from the outside and not like here are these women, et cetera, et cetera, but here is Chok, here is Chungi. They're individuals with selves and the consciousnesses, and consciousness is not gendered, right? The experiences of of women and men can be quite different um, as their lived experience, but in terms of the essence of the consciousness itself. There's nothing, um, that, uh, says this is the way that women think ultimately. This mm-hmm. is the way that men think ultimately. So thinking of them as individuals was, um, was key to, um, to writing this book and, um, creating their characters. Um, and, uh, yeah, in terms of representing the strength of the Chung sisters. Uh, part of that had to do with my own sense of the strength of women in my life and the women in public life and, you know, women, um, who for one reason or another, uh, society and, you know, an American society, we still have not had a woman head of state and, you know, people are overlooking and somehow blind to the strength and leadership of these great women leaders. And, um, so part of the motivation for writing it as well, was demonstrating how, uh, powerful and great such leadership can be.
1: And that brings me to this idea of using the word King throughout yeah. the novel. Can we talk about that? Why King and not Queen?
0: Yeah. Um, so, um, the, 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 uh, uh the 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 name right chung vung means uh the she king of the vietz right that that and so um the uh it was just inherent i think in the language and in um so uh, i i perhaps there wouldn't have been an equivalent of you know a, a co-regent in and the time i'm not sure why the term king is so insisted upon but it is in translations and in the histories of the chung sisters and so i was writing them as she kings instead of as queens because it was consistent with what i had been reading
1: oh interesting how that's like baked into chung vung. Yeah. vung is, is king I'm, I'm assuming right
0: um yeah the uh the chung chung vung is uh yeah the she king of the vietz is how it was shown to to me Yeah, you know.
1: yeah because you know yeah you don't hear these two described as new Huang, which is queens uh yeah. it's yeah you hear chung uh, and it was very interesting because um i it was it was a big question as i'm reading the book yeah. constantly hearing uh the, the word king as we're describing uh these these women
0: yeah, yeah. I mean perhaps there there's just no better word in English, right, um to describe that their um leadership, right? Than than king. Um uh, perhaps there could be a better one, but there isn't.
1: Yeah. And that deliberate use of the word king is is uh, fascinating and yeah. you know, I I'm curious to hear what other people how other people, you know, from now yeah. till you know in the next few years, how they react, and you know, I, I look yeah. forward to sitting with other people at dinner to hear about their their idea of like this use of the word king.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's interesting because it's it it uh, it was a clear choice at at some point, but I, it wasn't one that I had thought of as being as giving particular weight, only because it was what I had been reading in right. the history of the sisters
1: yeah you um address mental health in mm-hmm. this book um oh i felt that i felt that there was these ideas of, of mental health like littered throughout the you know dropped throughout yeah, the yeah. book and is that was that a conscious decision or that's something that
0: it's fascinating um I, it is something that um you know i have a family history of mental illness and things like that. So there's um, it's uh, certainly something that's on my mind. Um, and it, it wasn't necessarily um, something that I was putting as like, you know what I mean? A uh, like topic of the week kind of thing. It wasn't right. anything like that. It was just if, you know, the, the its presence is probably there because it's such a big presence in my life.
1: Has this the writing of the book, the researching of it affected in any way, your relationship to uh, your wife, to your mother to women, in general?
0: Um, that's a question probably best directed to my wife. <laughs> but uh, That's a good question. A very good question. I, I, I've noticed some Uh, you know, changes. Um, but I, I don't know whether to attribute them to the writing of the book. You know, it wasn't like I would write a passage and then I would have this big breakthrough in my, uh, relationship or, or, or whatever, but it was, um, I think more gradual. And I should say this isn't the first time that I've written Mm. about women from the perspective of women. Um, so, um, uh, so I, I don't know if it's a sort of a much older development in my, uh, really history of my relationship, but oh, makes sense. Um, yeah, no, I, that's a question for somebody who's more self-aware than I am.
1: I <laughs> <laughs> but by, by you just saying that it shows how self-aware you are. <laughs> how, how long did it take for you to write it?
0: I started, so I started researching it maybe 2013, but not. You know, I was also writing other projects, so I wasn't sort of doing that full-time or anything. I started writing it in 2016. I completed it in 2020, and it's been kind of a two-year route to publication.
1: Wow, it's almost 10 years.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, if you count that that sort of early research phase, then, Mm -hmm. yeah, almost 10 years.
1: What does it take for an artist, a writer... musician or somebody who's creating to stay on the path for that long? Because I'm sure, you know, as a creative, you have a lot of different ideas, a lot of different avenues that you can pursue. How does it, what does it take to stay on this one project? How do you do that?
0: Yeah. Um, so, uh, there's a quote, I don't remember who, who it's from. We can look it up and add it in later, but the, uh, the author said that writing a novel is like having an empty swimming pool and going out every day with a cup of water to fill it. And so it's sort of, you have to trust in, uh, gradualism. You have to trust in time and, um, and how incremental progress can lead to an eventual, uh, fulfillment. And, um, I think that comes from a lot of practice where, you know, I, I, my first couple of books are collections of short stories and, you know, short stories obviously are kind of sprinting rather than marathoning, Mm. but, um, but you don't know that you're going to come out of it with a whole book of stories until you do. And then, you know, even though you had been doing these sort of shorter projects, then eventually leads to this longer thing and seeing that, um, I think enabled me to realize that the same would be true of the novel, except that you don't get those. Um, uh, what do you call it? The instant gratification of you know I'm going to publish this and then somebody's going to read it and then it's going to give me fuel to work on the next one. You know that that has a much longer time horizon with the novel, and you have to believe in a project for a lot longer. And um, for me, uh, I'm often driven by uh, voice uh, if, if there's a voice that i like to inhabit for a long periods of time then i don't mind the work at all in fact it can be a great pleasure and um and which is not to say it's easy but uh but yeah that kind of um daily devotion to the task of writing comes from both practice and from um uh you know, that uh, evidence of it working before.
1: The idea of the drum patterns uh, from yeah. the bronze drum. Uh, was that historical
0: uh, accurate, or did you kind of come up with that? So, um, you know, the obviously uh, the drums themselves uh, are still remain a, a powerful symbol, um, but what they were used for is still they they speculate that they are used for ritual, for music, and for military, but they don't know for sure that wow. they're used. And so, uh, it 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 works best within the story for them to be used for all three purposes. In terms of what the rhythms were, that's entirely my you know uh, invention because um, they you know we we cannot have known how, what the drum rhythms would have been. Um, and I had a little fun, a little bit with the onomatopoeia, right. The, the <laughs> making, trying to simulate the sound of drums through, you know, using a lot of different, uh, letters and different configurations. So
1: what, what inspired this sort of, sort of idea of, you know, this, uh, audio sort of, um, rhythmic musical infusion into the story.
0: Yeah. Um, it was, um, it was from that uh speculation that it was used in military and uh that it made sense to me that if it were used and for a military purpose it wouldn't just be used the way that you know you have you know drums in like an old British military which is just to kind of um raise morale but instead would be used to signal communicate yeah and um and so uh, once you have this idea that the drums are there to communicate, then um, it becomes uh, a, a matter of how to get the whole army to go right? And how it, to get it to move in synchronization. And, um, and so the training became less about the um, uh, sparring and the uh the practice with the weaponry and more about uh, making sure the army is moving in sync
1: is the bronze drum very specific to vietnamese culture or does it exist in china and, and korea and other cultures
0: uh so in uh the southern china and northern uh vietnam that 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 dong song drum would would appear um you know in during and before this period right um so um uh i i don't know beyond that I, that i whether it appears in in other cultures but that particular style and um and that particular shape and everything i think is distinctly um of northern vietnam
1: what are the next projects that you are working on if you don't mind
0: sharing no i don't mind sharing at all and um I'm working on um, a project right now, which I think will have both a nonfiction and a fiction component to it, which is writing uh, a family history. And um, it's surrounding an incident in 1947 when my father was three years old, and there was a French air attack on the estate where they were living outside the city of Namdeng, And um, Unfortunately, uh, his mother and his one-year-old brother were killed in the airstrike. And um, after that, in order to process his grief, my father's father wrote a letter to my father about who his mother was, about the incident itself, about his process of grief. And, it, you know, he wrote it in French. It was translated into Vietnamese by his wife's family. It was kept in the family archives and my father never received it until 1982. And, uh, he just happened to be visiting, uh, a friend in, uh, a family, uh, friend in, in St. Louis who said, do you have a copy of the Le de mon office? And he said, I don't know what that is. And he said, it's a letter that your father wrote to you when, you know, after your mother died. And so he wrote to his contacts in Vietnam had the letter sent to him he translated it into english so that my mother could read it and i read this letter almost by accident and when i was 19 years old my father my mother was cleaning out some old papers and she said oh you, know, you might be interested in this and you know it's i grew up in a, a, you know with my father not being very emotionally expressive um, but here's this deep emotion in this letter about something so critical to our family history and I've, I wanted to write about it ever since. And um, so I plan to write a memoir about the journey of that letter and about um, you know, my father's journey uh, to the US and, um, and his parents um, you know, in, in Vietnam. And I also plan to write a fictionalized version of this history uh, centered more around my grandmother and my imagining of who she was and her experiences, so.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about the content of the letter?
0: Yeah. Um, so it first uh, very straightforwardly lays out the day. And so it was, uh, you know, a, a, I think June 10th of 1947. And, um, and the, this was like a retreat because they thought that the city of Namning would have been you know, was, was experiencing bombings and things like that. And so they had to flee from the city. And they thought they were safe in this countryside uh, in the town called uh, I'm going to mispronounce it, the Hall. Um, and uh, they were staying at this estate with a bunch of other families. And um, the uh, and then he describes the uh, the approaching um, planes and how people didn't think that they were actually going to attack the estate because it was not a military uh, compound or anything. It was just, you know, a bunch of families living there. And so they fled the, the building because of the, they thought it would be bombed, but instead they kind of strafed the countryside. And my um, grandfather was holding my father who was three years old at the time and ran to this row of pines. And my grandmother was holding my uncle who was 11 months old. And um she was paralyzed with fright in the field, and a single bullet went through the uh, the baby's mouth and into the mother's heart. And uh, the baby died instantly, and I think uh, my grandmother struggled a little bit with uh, with before she died. And then um, and then it writes about his grief, and um, it writes about who she was and about how, she was very, she was all about family and um, how she um, uh, loved games and how she, uh, you know, really appreciated her close friends. And, and then it was about, um, uh, so my, my grandfather was an engineer, a civil engineer. And so he puts it in almost mathematical terms when he's writing about his grief. And I wish I could remember, or I could probably look it up. But um, the uh, the exact terms that he uses, um, because I don't know from math at all. But you know, he uses these sort of mathematical term- terms. Terms about it, like the derivative of our happiness is you know with respect wow. to zero, or something around you know. And um, so, but it's it's beautiful despite it's sort of the 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 use of math and stuff and that. And he talks about feeling like he'll eventually, um, you know, feel normal again, but he, his, his body and mind rebel against feeling normal again, because that means that, that his wife and his uh, son are diminished in his memory. And uh, so uh, it's a 30 page letter. Um, And uh, it's um, it's been translated from in french to vietnamese to english so um uh so the version that i have also has some little dot dot dots for when the 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 written you know was not legible um so um yeah so i've just been always fascinated with the journey of that letter and of course with um my family history and what the effect of my father of growing up without um uh, a, a mother, I mean, they, his father remarried, um, but um, she, she wasn't didn't really pay that much interest in, in him. And um, so, so yeah, that's some of the stuff that the book is going to be about or the books plural.
1: I just want to stop the podcast right now and have you email it to me. <laughs> it's <how> so <laughs> fascinating. Uh, you know, yeah. yeah. It, it is because that letter, how long ago was it written? It was written in 1947 my maternal grandmother there was eight siblings five of them died that way
0: oh my goodness
1: five of them died that way french bombs yeah, yeah and and you think about the the legacy of war and you know my some of my friends and i were talking about this last night about epigenetics and how yeah. it gets really um into ourselves and you know whatever quantum theory or whatever's going on, we don't know about. Um, it's a really tragic and traumatic, uh, chapter in, in the history of the Vietnamese people, but if it dates all the way 2000, you said 2000 years ago.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, uh, it's, um, you know, I have, I, when I, when I visited Vietnam with my father, I was very surprised that, um, the people that we met seemed to like America and Americans and didn't have any kind of the conflicted feelings that Americans have about Vietnam and didn't have any kind of the bitterness and resentment I could have been just exposed to a very narrow segment of the population I don't know but um my sense of why that is and the explanation that was given to me by my father is, well that you know they you know they have had you know, these recent, um, conflicts with the U S but the conflicts that with, you know, China run back thousands of years, you know? And so, um, you know, the, the, it's gotta be seen through this lens where this is a very kind of small, um, moment compared to the much longer history. Um, I found the paragraph with the mathematical formulation. If you're interested in, please.
1: Yes. Can you read that?
0: Yeah. Um, Let's see. Uh, It comes to show a happiness which is always there is not felt very much, and we do not feel as happy as at the beginning. So having a lot of happiness makes us take it for granted and to state it clearly in mathematical terms, the happiness a person feels at a point in time is simply the derivative of the function of happiness with respect to time. This means the happy feeling does not vary as the magnitude of this happiness, but it varies as the rate of change of his happiness. When a person experiences a constant happiness, the derivative of that happiness with respect to time is zero, which means he's in a state of indifference, neither joyful nor sad. Therefore, the matter of happy feeling, which is mistakenly called happiness, is an internal matter depending only on one's own view of one's situation. Holy shit. 75 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, um, uh, engineer, you know, discovering his uh, poet soul, you know.
1: That's mind blowing.
0: Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, this is um, yeah. I just remember reading this letters and you know, n- and nineteen years old, just crying and thinking about how this you know the my father is the person he is because of this experience, and of course, and not just this experience, but um, you know, it's uh, his earliest memory. You know, at three years old. My earliest memory is my dad singing to me. You know, so yeah. <laughs>
1: and your dad came to the united states when he was a young person
0: yeah yeah he was 18.
1: 18 and he wasn't uh in the military or didn't have to go through so his sort of position and stance on uh you know all of that trauma dodged it a little bit right he was able to kind of sidestep yeah it. i mean
0: except for his uh, you know the the this childhood trauma and, right. and uh experience but So yeah, he was in, uh, you know, for most of it, he was in Madison, Wisconsin. And then, you know, he moved to New Jersey where I grew up, but, um, when he was in Madison, it was, you know, in the late 1960s and there was some, uh, so he denies it now, but he's told me that there was pressure on him to become activist in the, you know, against the Vietnam war, but his position was very complex. You know he, he thought that the southwest should have been more supported through you know uh money and weaponry and not with boots on the ground um and he thought that johnson was kind of a shoot from the hip cowboy type of uh president so but more recently when i've asked him about this he's like no there was no pressure on me at all to get involved with that so i don't know what the he, whether he's just trying to wave it away or or what
1: how has it been yeah. received in vietnam
0: um so so far um you know it's only been out a week in the u.s and i've received some interest in having translation um but i i I still have yet to see how it will be received i hope it will be received in the spirit of that as i said sort of the opening of a dialogue and a, a and not a version that replaces the traditional version of the story right um, and so, uh, uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I think it's verdict is still out on how it will be received. In yeah. Vietnam. I, I wonder
1: what the sort of powers to be, you know, their reaction to the anti Han, you, yeah, yeah. you know, I wonder how that, because of their censorship sort of, they want to play, you know, nicely with the Chinese and, you know, wonder how that equation all, you know, works out. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And I I, I like to think that uh, Ma Yuan's portrayal is as a more sort of subtler and nuanced portrayal of uh, the Han Chinese character and, um, you know, not as villainous as say the commander, um, you know, or the governor, um, but, uh, but yeah, I think there's always that potential that um, because, the Chung sister's enemy was the Han Chinese that for a variety of reasons and a variety of contexts, people might not um, want to um, promote or spread it around. I was thinking of like, you know, all these movie studios that uh, have to make different choices based on, well, this won't please play in China. China. Yeah. I won't play in China. So, Um, so yeah, don't, don't expect it coming to a theater near you anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) If,
1: you were to approach another myth or legend of folklore uh, in the same vein as uh, the Chung sisters, would you be able to do it quicker?
0: Um, Gosh, I hope so. Um, But I don't know if I would. I think I wouldn't probably because every book that I've written is a departure from the other Mm -hmm. books. It's, It's always something different. And so it has to have something Really new to it, in order for it to excite me, and so um, I, I, I can't imagine kind of repeating myself and writing sort of the same or, or or you know a different legend but in the same way. So I would have to find a new way to tell that story, and so it probably would take me as long.
1: Yeah. Well, I uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, the bronze drum, and I. Hope that we get a lot of people to read the book, and ultimately to have the book turned into a more TV episodic or or something that we can visually consume.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that would be great. Um, I'd love to see it, um, and uh, yeah, it's a story that was important to me, and 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 um, I I'm glad that it can be important to others as well.
1: Thank you for bringing it to life, and thank you for sharing your time with me today.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for this uh, broadcast and for this conversation.
1: Thanks, Bump. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review
0: wherever you find our podcasts.